Hebrews 20:20, we see Jesus, increment 36. How shall we escape? And Father, we thank you for this opportunity once again to listen to the Holy Spirit as the Word of God is taught. We pray that by your kindness we may appropriate grace in order to serve you acceptably as a kingdom of priests. We thank you for this in Christ's name and thank you for the answer to this in advance. Amen. Today we're matching up two passages in Hebrews, 2, 1 through 4, which is the opening salvo of co-exhortation, along with Hebrews 12, 25 to 29, which in many ways is a parallel passage and taken together, they're sort of mutually interpretive. And we're also going to bring, I think, a little bit closer to the fore, a sense of warning in Hebrews. What is the warning and what's it about when it says, how shall we escape both in both of these passages? Escape what? Well, I think what the author is after here is an eschatological event. He's demonstrating something, in other words, that is to happen in the heavens and after human history as we know it. And so his direction is, and his orientation, we might say, is eschatological. So in doing a theological exegesis of Hebrews, we concentrate, of course, on theology. We concentrate on Christology. And today, a little concentration on eschatology. God's great intention from the beginning is that he would be in solidarity with humankind, and that humankind would be in solidarity with him. For this reason, as Isaiah said, a child was born for us, and a son was given to us. For this reason, again, we cannot view the suffering and death of God's Son merely as a, an emergency solution to sin and to death in the human race. His suffering and death was considered by God to be fitting, and that's what we're going to see in Hebrews 2.10, that it was fitting in order to perfect the son by effecting his solidarity with humankind. In other words, God saw it fitting and appropriate, if not necessary, for the son to suffer and even to experience death in his perfecting as in union with humankind, with all of humankind. It was also fitting in God's view that the Son be perfected through suffering, given that he foresaw, and this is hamartiology, the theology of sin, God foresaw the human race to be fatally infected with sin. And so for humanity to be in solidarity with God in the Son means that we are all born of God's love 
And as such, for us to be perfected in solidarity with the Son is to be perfected in love. For this reason, I think we can agree entirely with Fleming Rutledge's statement that, quote, it is the very nature of God to offer God's self sacrificially. It is the very nature of God to offer God's self sacrificially, I would say, because God's very nature is self-sacrificing love. In 1 John, also known as Alpha John, the first epistle of John, we have what I like to call an anatomy of love. For God is love, says 1 John 4.16. And by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, says John, 1 John 3.16a. And again, God is love, 1 John 4, 8b. And God's love was manifested among us in this way. God sent his only eternally begotten son into the world. That's into this world under the, sl- the sway of the evil one. So that we would have life through him. Please notice that, so that we might have life, or we would have life through him. First John 4, 9. And still again, in John's anatomy of love, here is what love is. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the expiation, propitiation. I have both of these, expiation slash propitiation, which we'll explain as we go through Hebrews, for our sins, 1 John 4.10. Here is what love is, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the expiation, propitiation for our sins. In 1 John's anatomy of love, we get the picture that God is love and that God's love is his self-sacrificing nature. He sent his only son into the world so that we would have life through him, so that we would have life in solidarity with him. And still again, God sent his only eternally begotten son into the world to be the expiation of our sins. And so the son, it was fitting for the son to suffer, to be perfected in solidarity with all of humanity. The effect of the suffering of God's self-sacrificing love in the son was the removal of sin, which was the great obstacle that would have prevented the perfect solidarity of humanity with God. Sin is the obstacle. Christ became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, in solidarity with him. 
Now, you can anticipate objections. Someone may object to this and say, wait a minute, God is not sacrificing himself according to these verses. He is sending his son to be sacrificed. Where is this nature of God which supposedly offers God's self sacrificially? Well, I would answer first that God sent his only eternally begotten son who was entirely willing to offer himself. That's reflected in Isaiah's words in Isaiah 6. Here I am, send me. Second, and even more importantly, in giving his son, God loved the world so much that he gave his son. In giving the son, the father was in every way giving himself. As Acts 20, 28, a very important verse in what I consider to be the doctrine of the blood of Christ that runs throughout the scriptures, which I call the, the doctrine being the blood groove of the sword of the word. In Acts 20, 28, Paul says this, God acquired the church with his own blood. In giving his son, the father gave himself, therefore. And in the giving of the son, the son gave himself. For as Paul said, and we can all say that individually, he loved me and gave himself for me. So that now I can live by the faithfulness of the son of God. In Galatians 2.20. And not frustrate the grace of God. The grace of God is going to be a profound theme throughout today's message. If the spirit of grace is leading like I think he may be. Galatians 2.20 and 2.21. So we cannot deny. In fact we must fully affirm the father's full participation with the son. In his suffering and death. The full participation of the father. All of this belongs to. A theological exegesis of Hebrews. And it's especially so. Because nowhere else in the New Testament. Is the blood groove. As I call it. Of the sword of the word of God. More apparent. And more fluent. Nowhere else is sacrifice more important than in the epistle to the Hebrews. Nowhere else is that sacrifice more important. Namely, the once and for all and one time unrepeatable self-sacrifice of the son. In order to effect in order to make effective, in order to bring to completion God's solidarity with all of humanity, which ultimately is expressed in the words that God may be all and in all, or God being all in all. For now, let's just consider that this self-sacrifice was not merely a reaction to man's sin. But ultimately, it's a fitting way for the son to be perfected in solidarity with all of humankind 
and for all of humankind to be made his siblings, so that he would be the firstborn of many siblings, as Romans 8.29 would call it, and so that he may lead many sons to glory, whom he is not ashamed to call his siblings, in Hebrews 2.10 and 11. Now, this will become more evident as we continue our exegesis of Hebrews exposition. We're doing an exegesis of the exposition element in Hebrews. But once again, we're also interweaving and oscillating between the exposition and the exhortation. And even the messages I'm teaching or the sermons I'm preaching also, I hope, have that same form, an oscillation between exposition, teaching, and exposition. Exhortation or co-exhortation in which I say, hey, let's do this. Let's keep moving forward in this way at this time. So once again, here is the whole of the first salvo, the first burst of exhortation. We can call it co-exhortation in Hebrews because the exhorter leads from the front. Let's read it. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4 So far, I have this kind of working translation. On account of this, we ought to be much more attentive to what we have heard, lest we start drifting away. The aorist tense there can be ingressive, drifting, or it can be culminative or constative. And the warning here is against completely drifting away. But the moment we stop being attentive, We start drifting away. Then verse 2, for if the word spoken by angels was firm or confirmed and every violation of it and disobedient act against it received a just penalty. How will we escape? And I put in brackets, a just penalty. How will we escape a just penalty? Now, A lot of theologians today and teachers and pastors hate the word penalty because they think they're going to move into the territory of the penal sacrifice of Christ, and they hate the word penalty. But the Bible uses it, so we're, we're going to use it a little bit here. The word that is used for penalty is similar to the word for reward, only on a negative side of it. How will we escape a just penalty if we pay attention or if we pay no attention, or we could say, if we neglect so great a salvation or such a great salvation, which was first received, and I'm going to explain that down the road, being declared through the Lord himself, that's Jesus Christ in the days of his flesh, by those who heard him. And Hebrews was not written by one of those who saw Jesus in the flesh and heard him, but heard through those who heard him. So again, how will we escape if we pay no attention to such a great salvation, which was first received being declared through the Lord himself by those who heard him? In other words, first received by those who heard him being declared by the Lord himself. God himself, that's referring to the Father and the Spirit, verse 4, 
God himself, that is the Father, testifying at the same time both by wonders and various kinds of miracles and by distribution of gifts by the Holy Spirit as he willed. There's a question mark at the end of this because from verse 2 all the way through 4, the question is asked. So here and throughout the rest of the hortatory, or we also call it paranetic, P-A-R-A-E-N-E-T-I-C. Paranetic means exhortational or even sometimes correctional or reproof. Here and through the rest of the hortatory or paranetic part of Hebrews, we're faced with the question of how such a great salvation, which is for all and for every person and which can never be lost, how that can still warrant a warning against its neglect. How can there be a salvation for all enacted on behalf of all from beyond all that can't be lost? How can there still be a warning against the neglect of such a great salvation? Well, let me just give you a hint from the top of the message here. God does not threaten Christians or the human race at all in toto. He does not threaten us with being damned in fire. But he does, and if I use this word advisedly, warn us about being saved through fire. Not damned in fire, but saved through fire. That's the warning. So here and throughout the rest of the paranetic part of Hebrews, or the, what we call the exhortation part, we're faced with that question. A large part of the answer to this has to do with neglecting the word of God. To neglect the word of God is to neglect such a great salvation. For it's the implanted word that's able to save the soul. In fact, to receive the word of God in terms of the gospel is to receive such a great salvation. And that is to have it working in us at the present time while we're still in this world under the sway of the evil one, while we're still in this evil age, and while we're still living in a time in history in which multitudes of millions of people are accepting the lie and following the lie in their ignorance and who are also building a refuge of lies that's destined to burn down. And I speak of this by many ways to build a refuge of lies, largely through human ideologies that are subversive of true freedom. I'm talking about doctrines of men that nullify the word of God, traditions of men, and a younger generation especially, but not just a younger generation, all the generations of our time are in danger of drifting from the truth of the gospel and experiencing a, an eschatological shaking that this writer warns about. We're all going to be part of that universal eschatological shaking. We'll see how this works out. 
and how it's actually demonstrated in our two passages today. Remember, Hebrews 2, 1 to 4, parallel with Hebrews 12, 25 to 29, it'd be well worth your reading both of these to show that they, they complement each other in a way that's mutually interpretive. Each one fills a gap or bridges a gap in the interpretation and the meaning of the other. And so a large part of the answer to this question has to do with neglect of the word. Even the appeal of the writer to his readers that they do not forsake the assembling of themselves reveals that the reason for gathering together or assembling ourselves as Christians is to receive the kind of encouragement that comes by the word of God and the spirit of grace. Moreover, in the time in which Hebrews was initially written, the pattern on the part of some at that time in history to abandon the assembling of the saints was due to the fear of reprisal for the Roman Empire, for example, had the power of death over them, the threat of death over Christians. The one thing that is needful to Christians then and now is not the physical assembling of believers, but the word of God, which may be received with or without a physical church to go to. The one thing is to be attentive to what we have heard. The alternative is to be caught up in a rip current of lies and ideologies or doctrines and commandments of men that nullify the word of God or to just a vagabond, empty life. Of drifting. When Jesus said that Mary of Bethany had, quote, chosen that good part which will never be taken away from her in Luke 10:42, he was referring to her attentiveness to the word, not her assembling together with others. If someone elevates the assembling above the word, they may go to church just to feel that they've complied with Hebrews 10.25. But the result may be that they've assembled with a bunch of people who are being misinformed by false doctrine every Sunday. That's a possibility. If we get anything out of our separation, I hope we get this. As Hebrews 2.1 says, we ought to be more attentive to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. Our attentiveness is to the word, the word of God, which the PT will later describe as living and powerful, energetic and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword. We're talking about a sword with a blood groove here. And he describes the word as, quote, penetrating to the separation of soul from spirit, joints from marrow. 
and its ability to, quote, judge the deliberations and the intentions of the heart. That's Hebrews 4.12. And it's perhaps these very functions of the word which cause some to shrink away from it. They'd rather hear a pep talk or an entertaining sermon. Some shrink from the word and choose instead to assemble in a quote-unquote church where the message is more palatable to the natural man and appeals along the lines of their own personalities in the flesh. where the service is much more like entertainment than real edification through doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness from the word of truth rightly divided. 2 Timothy 2.15, 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Timothy 4.2, Many turn away their ears from the truth and turn to fables, ideologies, lies. Some are even comforted by the doctrine of hell. That is, by the belief that they aren't going there because of their belief or because of their good behavior. And that others are going there is equally comforting to these people. Others are going there because of their unbelief or their bad behavior and good riddance to those people. Those awful people. I, for one, do not subscribe to the idea that you go to church even if the doctrine is off and the gospel is absent just so that you can have a Christian social time and a family experience of worship and activities for the kids. You want activities for the kids? Go to Disney World. What kind of worship centers around A false gospel. That's what I'm... Well, we need to go to church, even though the gospel of the unchained grace of God is never proclaimed there, because we just have to have that social experience with Christians. Yeah, Mary could have said, yeah, I want to have my social experience with my sister Martha, so I too can run around the kitchen and prepare things while Jesus is in the other room with a desire to teach us. Let's continue with our exegesis here. See what I just did there? I went to a little preaching. But here's our exegesis of Hebrews 2. In Hebrews 2.2, the word spoken by angels, as it's called, is the covenant given at Mount Sinai. Remember, the superiority of the sun over angels is related to the superiority of the word God spoke in the Son over the word God spoke 
through angels. This word spoken by God through angels at Sinai, though superseded by God's final word, which he spoke in his son, was nevertheless binding until the son came and fulfilled both the law and the prophets in Matthew 5.17. Stop thinking that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And so Christ is the end of the law, as Romans 10.4 says, meaning that he is its consummation and fulfillment. Consequently, because the law was binding until the Son came, violations and acts of disobedience to the word spoken by angels were met with appropriate penalties up to and including death. Now that's the reason for the flow of this passage. The fluency of this passage continues to ask a single penetrating question. For if the word spoken by angels was firm and every violation of it and disobedient act against it received a just penalty, or, ironically, a just reward. How will we escape? And what he means is, how will we escape a just penalty if we pay no attention to such a great salvation which was first received, being declared by the Lord himself, by those who heard him? That salvation was first received by those who heard him. God himself testifying at the same time, both by wonders and various kinds of miracles. We'll be talking about those down the road. And by distribution of gifts by the Holy Spirit as he willed. The implication here is if the word spoken by angels was violated, resulting in penalty and loss even up to the loss of life, sometimes loss of property, sometimes an eye for an eye, etc. How much more, he uses an a fortiori argument here in rhetoric, how much more will a just penalty be attached to neglect or indifference or apathy to the word spoken by God in a son? Now, this question is framed slightly differently in Hebrews 12.25, and it, gets, it gives us kind of an interpretation. It helps us out to understand here. God's not being threatening. God is warning. There is a threat, not that Christians or anyone else will be damned in hell, but that some will be saved through fire. He never threatens that we'll be damned in fire forever, but that we may be saved, but as through fire. Again, the implication is if the word spoken by angels was violated, resulting in penalty and loss, even up to loss of life, how much more, a fortiori, 
will a just penalty be attached to neglect of the word spoken by God in a son? The question is framed slightly differently in Hebrews 12, 25. In fact, and I think I would recommend you read both of these or study both of these together. Hebrews 12, 25 through 29 is parallel to Hebrews 2, 1 to 4, and they are meant to be conflated, blended as it were. Let's see. And here's my translation. We're going to be dealing with my working translation from the Greek text of Hebrews 12. And let's begin with verse 25. See to it that you don't refuse the one speaking. For if they don't, if they didn't escape, there it is again. They didn't escape when they rejected him, that's God, who warned on earth, that means on Sinai, through angels. How much more will they not escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven? That is from the heavenly Mount Zion. If you look up starting at verse 12 and verse 18, you begin to see what he means here. The comparison is the word spoken on Mount Sinai compared to the word spoken from the heavenly Mount Zion. This verse, in fact, bridges a gap in Hebrews 2.2 2 by showing specifically that the word spoken by angels originated with God, whose voice on that occasion shook the earth at Sinai. It was an earthquake that kind of accompanied his words. Even Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. This word indeed shook the earth. But the word spoken in the sun from heaven will shake the heavens. In fact, it will shake the universe. The universe itself. He's referring to a, listen carefully, universal eschatological shaking. Hebrews 12, 26 goes on to say, then at Sinai, his voice shook the earth. You ever hear that descriptive term, earth shaking? That's the word at Sinai. But now, in verse 26, but now he has promised Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. That's the prophet Haggai, H-A-G-G-A-I, Haggai in 2.6, which says, yet once more, I will shake the heaven and the earth and the sea and the dry land. So this is an allusion to the prophet Haggai. 2.6, especially. Verse 27 goes on to say the PT is doing his, little, his own little exposition or commentary. Yet by this phrase, or now by this phrase, yet once more, he makes clear that the shaking means the removal of what cannot or what can be shaken. It means the removal of what can be shaken. That is, things that have been made what Hebrews 9, 10, and 11 calls things of this 
creation in order that what remains are things that cannot be shaken. Now, what emerges through this eschatological universal shaking? And that's a shaking that is yet future to us. This isn't talking about A.D. 70 here. So if you're a full preterist, you might have to wake up to this. Hopefully better now than then. Because what will shake is your full preterism. Now, I'm not speaking just at you. There's a lot of things in my life that will be shaken too. And that will leave nothing but unshakable things. The old creation passes away. The old things pass away as they are sublated into the new creation. Even as the old humanity is dissolved or passes away or vanishes as it is sublated into Christ to become the new humanity. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Colossians 3.10-11 speaks of a corporate new humanity, as does Ephesians 2.15. In this new humanity, there are no antagonistic divisions and no reason for divisiveness. Jew versus Gentile, black versus white, and vice versa. Male versus female, and vice versa. Poor versus rich, and vice versa. In this new humanity, Christ is all, and he's in all. This alone is the message that brings peace to our times. By this message of the gospel, Jews don't kneel to Gentiles. Gentiles don't kneel to Jews. Blacks don't kneel to whites. And whites don't kneel to blacks. We may kneel together, Jew and Gentile, black and white, male and female, in prayer to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I hope you're woke to this. Every knee is destined to bow to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 3, 14 and 15, at the mention of the name Jesus, and every tongue will pledge allegiance, not to a flag, but to him. To bow the knee to any other is to bow the knee to Baal. The writer refers to a universal eschatological shaking here. A universal eschatological shaking. Which precedes, thankfully, a universal eschatological Sabbath, a settling in of the things that can't be shaken, and a rest with God resting from his own work in the new creation and all the new creation resting in him. Now, the just penalty 
of refusing the one who speaks from heaven is the eschatological suffering of loss. It will not mean damnation in fire, but salvation through fire. Consequently, the strong advice of Hebrews 12.28 precedes the declaration in Hebrews 12.29. So we're left now with 12.28, which is advice or cohortatory incentive. Hebrews 12.29 ends with a declaration about what God is. So the strong advice of Hebrews 12.28 precedes the declaration in Hebrews 12.29 that says, our God is a consuming fire. Here's the advice, 12.28. Therefore, receiving an unshakable kingdom, let us take possession of grace. Karin here. Let us take possession of grace. Let's grasp grace the grace of God for ourselves. Let's seize upon that which we could never earn or deserve. Power that's perfected in weakness is what he's saying. Therefore, receiving an unshakable kingdom, even now, let us take possession of grace so that by it, by grace, we may serve God in an acceptable manner with reverent obedience and awe. You say, how did you get the word obedience out of that? Well, Lou Nida, L-O-U-W and N-I-D-A, two scholars, are always helpful. They have a lexicon based on semantic meanings. And as is often the case, they're helpful here. And they say, the implication of such reverent fear or awe is, of course, obedience. And some scholars prefer to interpret these terms in Hebrews 11.7 and 5.7, as well as here, to mean obey or obedience. So with Hebrews 12.28, we have a reminiscence of Philippians 2.12, where Paul speaks of the saints at Philippi who were obedient to the word, being all the more obedient in Paul's absence. He said, you were obedient not to Paul, but to the word in my presence while I was with you, in the parousia, Paul's parousia, his presence with them. All the more be obedient in my absence from you. So there and our obedience is to the end of or the goal of working out there and our own salvation with what? With fear and trembling. You See the correlation here between Philippians 2.12 and Hebrews 12.28. In fact, Hebrews 12.28 is interpretive of Paul's phraseology in Hebrews 2.12. So working out our salvation with fear and trembling is similar to serving God acceptably with reverence, obedience, and awe in Hebrews 12.28. It may even be, again, that reverent obedience and awe is interpretive or what Paul means by his phraseology Obedient with fear and trembling in Philippians 2.12. So to have or to appropriate 
or to grasp or to seize and make one's own the grace of God is synonymous with not receiving the grace of God in vain. And this is reminiscent again of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 to 10. My translation, I, the least of the apostles, am not even worthy to be called apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, by it, that is by the grace toward Paul, which he received and seized for himself, by it, I have worked harder than all of them, all the other apostles. But not I, the grace of God, that is with me. And Paul again in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1 and 2. As co-workers together with God, he said, we also exhort you not to receive the grace of God in vain or to no purpose and no end. For verse 2, for he says, and here he alludes to Isaiah 49, 8, and uses a similar word that is used both there and Hebrews 2, 18 and 13, 6. Boethio, boethio, B-O-E-T-H-E-O, B-O, long E, T-H-E-O, long O. And he says this, at a welcoming time, God is speaking, at a welcoming time, I heard you. And in a day of salvation, please note the word salvation, soteria, I helped you. And again, as an allusion to Isaiah 49, 8, and then Paul makes the startling declaration, look, now. That means, look, behold, wake up to this. Now is that welcome season. Now is the day of salvation. Soteria. Compare its use here with Hebrews 2.3, 2.10, 5.9, 6.9, 9.28, 28. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day not to neglect it. A day is coming that's a day of shaking. The group that was initially addressed in Hebrews and is being addressed again in the 21st century, that group was definitely weak and tempted to quit. But it's precisely those kind of people, our kind of people, for whom God's grace is perfected. One more time, this time, not Paul, but Jesus to Paul. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is enough for you, for power is perfected in 
weakness. Power is affected in weakness. What can I do? What can I do in these times, these troubled times, these perilous times, these divisive times, these times that could very well lead to a civil war of some kind? What can I do? What can I do? Well, answer this. What must we do to do the works of God? Jesus said, believe on the one whom God has sent. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. Commit your way to him. He'll make it to pa- bring it to pass. Trust in the Lord. Do not be afraid. Only believe. Trust in the Lord. Don't neglect his word. Yes, your heart may break for a generation who have neglected his word and who even have maligned it and who are being drifted, drifting away and being led away on a wave of deception and dangerous ideologies that will lead them to destruction. Yes, your heart aches for them. But you continue in grace. God will work. God will work in them. Now we're back to Hebrews 12.29. After 12.28, therefore receiving an unshakable kingdom, let's take possession of grace so that by it we may serve God in an acceptable manner with reverent obedience and awe. He says, for indeed, our God is a consuming fire. An allusion there to Exodus 24.17, Deuteronomy 4.24, Deuteronomy 9.3. This word, consuming, that defines the word fire, has to do with the destruction that occurs in a process of sublation. Throughout Hebrews, the pastor teacher is referring not to a penalty and loss that's self-inflicted on earth, even though that too results from a neglect of the word or rejection of the gospel, A.D. 70, for example, or 1 Corinthians 11, 30 to 32, for example. So throughout Hebrews, the pastor teacher is referring not to a penalty and loss on earth, but to an eschatological loss in heaven. So it is important for us to resort at this time and refer at this time and consider in detail at this time 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15, 2 Corinthians 5.10, Romans 14.10-12, and we'll look only at the first of these, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, in which the consuming fire that is God is referred to. Yes, there are historical consequences, personal consequences on earth for neglecting the word of God. But the pastor teacher here is ultimately pointing 
to eschatological realities, future prophetic, universally shaking realities. The danger that's being warned of here is not merely hypothetical. It is a warning of eschatological loss. Though not by any means, and listen carefully to this, not by any means the loss of salvation. How could that be if God enacted salvation from beyond us and for us? All. The danger that's being warned of here is that of eschatological loss, however, though by no means the loss of salvation. Remember this. God is love, as we started the message off with, and God is a consuming fire, as we end the message with. God is love, and God is a consuming fire. Both mean the same thing. They are not incompatible. And if you read Song of Solomon 8, 6, and 7, you make that connection. You can do that on your own if you want, or you don't have to. God is love, 1 John 4, 8, and also in 4, 16. And our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 29, are altogether compatible statements. That alone does away with the hellfire doctrine. Are you proud of the fact I'm a hell guy, you say? Are you proud of that? I'm a hell guy. Hell. If we insist on preserving the old life until we die physically, then we will lose that life in the world to come. But it will be in order to gain real life. If we willingly lose the life of the old self under the control of sin or the flesh, capital L, F-L-E-S-H, We, if we lose that life that's controlled by the flesh or sin, we gain even now the life, capital life, of the coming age. Though certainly not yet completely as it will be when we are resurrected. If one insists on using the word threat, now I brought up two words that are very, very off-putting to people. Penalty. Now threat. If I were to use the word, if one insists, let's say, on using the word threat here, we might say that we are threatened. Not with damnation in fire, but with salvation through fire. So let's consider 1 Corinthians 3.10 to 15. I've translated it with some slight commentary insertions. According to the 
grace of God. Isn't that interesting how that keeps popping up? According to the grace of God, there was given to me as a skillful architect. It's a metaphor. There was given to me as a skillful architect this grace by which I laid a foundation. Another builds upon it. He's speaking there in context of Cephas, also known as Peter, and of Apollos, who was a Hellenistic Jewish preacher. Another builds on it. But let each one be careful how he builds upon it. Indeed, no one can lay any other foundation than that which was already put down or put in place. That being Jesus Christ. Thank God the foundation has been put in place and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12. Now someone may build, however, it's how you build on the foundation. Do you build on the foundation through neglect of so great salvation? So you're building with wood, with straw stalks, and hay? Or are you building with proper building materials? Well, let's go on. Verse 12. Now someone may build upon this foundation using gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Verse 13. Whatever they use, the quality of work that each builder has done will be plain to see. When? In the eschatological shaking. It will become plain to see. For it will be clearly revealed. In the light of the eschatological day. In the light of the day. And he means eschatological day. Also known as the day of Christ. Philippians 1.6. 1.10. 2, 15 and 16, the day of the Lord Jesus, 2 Corinthians 1, 14, 1 Corinthians 1, 8, the day when the Lord returns, bringing salvation. Will that salvation be through fire or will that salvation be salvation plus reward? Verse 13 again. The quality of work that each builder has done will be plain to see, for it will be clearly revealed in the light of the eschatological day. The eschatological, and I'm adding that just to give qualification to what he's talking about, the eschatological fire will prove the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives the fire, there it is again, fire, he will receive a reward. Now, this word reward is misthon, M-I-S-T-H-O-N, and it's related to 
misthapodosian, a longer form of it in Hebrews 2.2. The positive misthon reward, in other words, is related to the negative misthapodosian, negative use of the word reward, of Hebrews 2.2. 15, verse 15 says, if it is burned up, it will be lost. The builder himself, it's hard to say this without saying, thank God, the builder himself will be saved. But his salvation will be as through fire. The threat of neglecting so great a salvation of refusing to work out our own salvation with reverential fear and obedience to the word of God. The reward is salvation through fire. So we're dealing here with eschatological realities. If you're not used to that word, get used to it. Eschatological realities. And... By that I mean we are dealing with events or a universal eschatological shaking not covered by events of A.D. 70. How will we escape eschatological loss if we are inattentive or indifferent to such a great salvation, to the word of God spoken in a son, in Jesus Christ our Lord. How indeed, go and learn what this means. 